Okay, so on this week's episode of Masters of the Craft, uh, we have another one of your friends, Jay Elvis, is joining us. Can you talk about, you know, how do you know Jay and what were some of the, the highlights uh, from the inter- interview for you? My relationship with, with, with him is interesting because um, we, ha- we have a lot of the same friends from the days of, of the ranch, which uh, by now people, I'm sure something's aired with a ranch person on it, but the ranch was a place where I used to hang out in LA, just a house we called the ranch. Uh, and he actually, when the ra- ranch uh, disbanded, um, he came around just as I, as I left. And so he knows all the same people I know, and we have sort of a shared history, but not together. <laughs> we know, so that's a very strange thing. And so when I met him um, uh, a few years ago, um, it's been a while now, um, it was like we'd known each other. It was a strange thing because we had all the same references and knew all the same people. Um, and so, uh, so he's a guy that it feels like I've known him a lot longer than I have, but I have known him for several years now. Um, funny, hilarious, one of the best joke writers. I've known a lot of joke writers, that guy. Like, if you follow him on Twitter, forget about it. Like, I don't know how he does what he does. He's amazing at it. Um, just an amazing writer that way. And um, there's some craftsmanship there. So I thought it would be interesting to talk to him on the show uh, about how he does what he does and how he thinks, you know. Um, uh, I, I found it, it, for me, it was like a lot of these interviews. It was hanging out with a friend. Uh, and it felt that way. And hopefully... Um, the fly on the wall nature of this show is that you get a feeling for what it's like when two people who are pros talk to each other. What do they talk about? How do they talk about it? How do they think about it? Uh, and I think that comes through in this interview. So I think it'll be fun for people. All right. This week's episode with Jay Elvis. Hello, and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft, a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by writer, director, and comedian Jay Elvis Weinstein, a founding member of Mystery Science Theater 3000, a writer and producer of the NBC show Freaks and Geeks, and director of the new documentary Michael Daybar, Who Do You Want Me to Be? Jay Elvis shares how his early start on the comic circuit influenced his writing and how he creates compelling story without artifice. I started as a stand-up at 15. Oh, okay, 15. Now, how could you start as a... That always fascinates me because I couldn't get into a club till I was 21, so I'm always amazed. Like, Judd Apatow started young and you started young. How did that happen? How did you do that? Well, my first first stop was a club called the Ha Ha Club, which had didn't have a liquor license, so there was no okay. Oh, okay, okay. Um, Where was with, that? That was in Uptown Minneapolis. Okay. But within about six months, I was playing every club in town, and no one cared. You know, I wasn't a okay. I didn't look like a kid, really, and okay. I wasn't doing material about being a kid. Okay. So everyone sort of, upon, you know, at first glance, everyone thought I was probably 22 or 23. Okay. And then once they found out, they also saw that I was legit as a comic, so just no one cared, you know? Oh, well, that's cool. Even when, I went, even when I went on the road, no one cared. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool for you. It was. Wow. I started doing road gigs when I was 16. Wow, okay. So by the time you started doing Mystery Science, you'd been doing it. You've been at this a while. Yeah, I was a real comic, I guess. I was a professional comic, but not, okay. you know, I, I wasn't accomplished. But right. I but met you were Joel Hodgson because Joel, Joel had, like, had a big moment as a comic in the early 80s. He did, yeah. 
and then retired for two years. Yeah. So when he came back to stand up in 87 was right when I was starting. Okay. And then he taught a class a few months later that I took. Okay. Just sort of about creativity and stand up and we became friends and okay. sort of would get together and write. And then the mystery science theater, he was born out of a writing group that several comics had. Okay. I met him around that time too. Yeah. And, and he uh, was pitching, uh, he was pitching mystery science theater to me and a, and a bunch of people at the ranch, which we right. won't get into, but a house essentially. And, um, uh, I had no idea what he was talking about. Like, it didn't make any sense to me. I remember him saying, you know, it's a guy and he's on a space station and he's got to watch bad movies. And I'm like, I don't know what you're saying to me. Like, I don't know what this show is. <laughs> I remember yeah. having no concept of what he was saying. Well, and I think had we not done it as a UHF show, it never, you know, he couldn't have pitched it. You know? right. yeah. our, pitch, our pitch was the show, you know? So mm -hmm. that I think the only way this show could have happened was the way it did, you know? I think that's probably true because I, I just remember being completely well, good luck with that, Joel. You know, I didn't think, right. you know what I mean? So uh, I learned a valuable there's lesson. there's two robots and then apparently <laughs> you have to say comments during the movie. Yeah, exactly. yeah. It's like, I don't like when people talk during the movie. Yeah, I don't know what you're getting at. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, when you started stand-up, did you have uh, influences? Who were they? Who were the best people you thought, you know, and, and what did you take from them? Or maybe even people you worked with? Every every comic was my influence. I think you know. Okay. I was just I was so into it mm -hmm. that I was watching everybody, and you know, when I look back at that material, I feel like I was pretty heavy heavily influenced by Dennis Miller of the day. Okay, you know my yeah. my cadence and my sarc. You know, I would like to hit words pretty hard. You know. Okay. Okay. And I would like I would love to construct those magical phrases. You know. Sure. Yeah. Um, so. But it wasn't as, it wasn't that conscious at the time. But looking right. back, it, that was the cadence I was probably most adapting. What made you want to be a comic in the first place? Like, is there a foundational? My family, my family made me want to be a comic. I grew up in a basically a house, a comedy house. Okay. Not, you know, not not through show business. No, but that. just everybody. It was it was um... jokes. Jokes were a big part of life in my family. Okay. And this sort of ethic of everything is funny and serious at the same time. Oh, sure. Yeah. It was That's... very important. You know, you could break no matter what shit was going down. If you can't, if there was a good joke, it would get appreciated. You know? Okay. Like, you know, conversely, you could piss off my mom pretty badly with the wrong joke. Okay. Wrong... All right. Okay. Uh, uh, and how far back do you know did this go? Was your, were your grandparents this way? Were your. Uh, well, I think, you know, Historically, Jews are funny, but, you know. Well, well, let, well let's talk about that. Let's unpack okay. that for just a second. Um, because uh, I've, I've often wondered about that as a coping mechanism, right? As a, yeah. as a right? I mean, I always say to uh, some friends who are Jewish, I go, yeah, here's the thing about uh, Jewish people. They are the black people of Europe. You know, that they, that for all of Europe, let's blame these people, right? Yeah. Let's blame these people. Um, and they were well, kicked out of virtually every European country at some right. point in the and, last thousand years. Yeah, always blamed for everything, always getting kicked out of countries and, and, uh, or put in ghettos. And, you know, I've often wondered if it's a, if it's a coping mechanism that got I, passed I down. It, I think it absolutely is. I think, you know, the Jewish sort of cultural memory is one of waiting for a shoe to drop. It's interesting because I think black humor 
and Jewish humor comes from the same place. Right. Except uh, black humor is often um, uh, making uh, lemonade out of lemons. It's often, I'll use this jelly jar as a glass, that kind of thing. Right. And for, for Jewish people, it's usually, what are you going to do? It's lemons. Right. It's like, it's, yeah, it's you right. know what I mean? It's a lot of, yeah, things are messed up. Yeah, right. it's just about how sour this lemon juice is. Yeah, it's right, not, yeah. It's not... We don't add sugar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just an interesting... Uh, but I think it comes from the same place. I think so, too, yeah. When life is hard, you make a choice that you either dwell on the fact that life is hard right. constantly, right, or you find a way to make something light in your dark life. You know? Yeah, so you, you uh, started working on Mystery Science, uh, and you uh, performed as well as wrote now right. i don't i know a little bit about the show just because uh, hanging out with people involved in it but i don't know uh how it actually came together so i don't know like when you were writing it did you watch the movie and make you know and write it well, or did you watch it? it it evolved it was okay. the initial thing was joel had come up with this concept of this guy of, it was based on the hosted local TV show movie, you know, okay. the weekend movie where you'd have the local host and you'd come back to them at the commercial breaks, you know, and, you know, and Elvira is based on that too. And, oh, right. Sure. Yeah. Know. And then the, the thing that Joel added to it was, well, not, he's going to, he's going to be such a good host that he'll actually go into the theater and watch the movie with Sure. You. Sure. Um, and so he came up with this, constru this construct of this guy in space on a satellite um, and then he brought Trace Bullion and I in and, and, and he had these robots and Trace and I each kind of grabbed a robot and, you know, over the course of three or four shows kind of developed personalities for these robots and, um, you know, but initially it was going to be, there was going to be a couple jokes, you know, mm -hmm. and a couple of trivia facts that you'd talk about, but then we started making more jokes and then you started once we started to feel a rhythm, you'd start to feel the absence of jokes when there should be a joke. Okay, sure. So we slowly started filling this whole thing up with jokes. So we all, you know, we all learned how to do the show as we were making the show. Okay. The UHF station in Minneapolis. You know? Okay. And was was that your first sort of TV writing gig? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and then uh, after the show, now, how long did you stay with the show? I did that first year at the UHF, and then we went, and then I did the first season once it went to Comedy Central. Okay, all right, and then and then you left to do other things. I left to do other things, yeah. And what were those other things? Uh, well, I went back. To, I was eighteen, so I did stand up uh, around. Okay. I went on the road and really did a ton of stand up around the country. I did like forty states by the time I was twenty. What were you picking up as you were doing this? Well, I mean, the whole time I was, you know, mostly creatively my goal was to build an act essentially okay. you know to build a headline an hour of material that was gonna work in any room basically i mean that's mm -hmm. that's what your first goal is as a comic you know? sure is that first hour you know mm -hmm. so uh so that's mostly what i was and i was a fairly you know i was a diligent joke writer at the time okay but you know i wasn't i was a boy pretending to be a man too Right. You know, and so I didn't have a lot of point of view. Okay. I, you know, sarcasm was kind of my point of view. Right. 
Um, I didn't have life experience other than being a comic, really, because I had done that since I was 15. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really just building who I was on stage as much as the jokes, you know? Sure. And developing a point of view and developing the power of being on stage. You know, it's it, looking back, I'm like, this 18-year-old Jewish kid walks into a bar in Beulah, North Dakota for 200 coal workers, you know, and I had the confidence to do it at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, now I go, I don't know if I have the confidence to do that now. Right, right. <laughs> but, you, did you not, you didn't know enough to be scared in a way or? Well, I guess I did or and I didn't, but I just knew that this was the gig, you know. Right. And I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to, if the other guys are doing it, I was certainly going to do it. It wasn't, you know. Right. But it was, uh, you know, it was a great adventure for a kid. You know? All right. But you don't have any, like, I remember, you know, just just working with different people and I see how people, like, for instance, I spend a lot of time in front of people. Well, used to before COVID, in front of people talking, you know, lecturing right. and all of that. Um, uh, my stand-up career was uh, too short. Uh, to get any good. And I also realized that I didn't know how to tell the truth on stage, uh, which made me uh, uh, not a very good comic. Right. What was interesting is I was uh, more interested in being uh, in movies and working on movies and writing screenplays. And that's why I moved to LA and then kind of fell into stand up, which is great for the people I now know and all of that. But I fell into it. There were almost no other black people trying to do what I was trying to do or that I saw. I never saw another black person on a movie set when I was there. It was always just me. And I felt, talk about assimilation, I felt like I had to assimilate. And so when I was doing stand-up, I wasn't honest about what my life was like. Right. And so I was just being silly and I wasn't going very deep. And I just didn't, it's like, okay, I, I, you know. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that until I saw Chris Rock. Chris Rock wasn't famous yet. But when I saw Chris Rock at the comedy store one night, I was like, Oh, that I can't. Oh, okay. I can't do that. Like, you know, um, and it wasn't very much longer after that, that I, that I bailed on the whole thing, but uh, I learned a lot and I'm glad I did it before I did it. I had horrible stage fright. Um, And now, you know, virtually no stage fright. I never became a very good performer. My, you know, in my early days, I I have a, there's, um, you you can see it on my YouTube thing, but there's like a, there's a spot from like 1990, to uh, an A&E comedy on the road where I'm like 20 years old and I'm looking at it going, you had, you know, I had chops, right? I was taking the stage. I was owning the stage, but I had nothing to say, you know? Right. Yeah. You know, it was all third person. Okay. But, but eighties comedy was third person. It wasn't really, you know, it wasn't really until the alt comedy scene sprouted out and people started dumping their notebooks on stage and then, you know, the comedy had to crash. The third-person comedy scene yeah. crashed. Yeah, it did. And then born out of that was interesting personal stuff. And then that developed into interesting personal comedy. It had to go through a time of punchlineless. Right, that makes sense. But then I think what the great thing that happened and why I think there's so many more interesting comics now than there were 20 years ago is what comedy became was very personal and very first person and almost a competition to be confessional. Right. Uh, well, and, you know, you know, and then everyone can talk from on the ground that they stand on, you know? 
Right. That's, you know, it's interesting because uh, I was just talking about this with somebody because the best piece of writing advice I ever got is when I was trying to get into comic books as a writer. I mean, I was a teenager. I wasn't, nobody's going to hire me, but, but I was listening to uh, writers and I was at a convention. Uh, This was probably 1980 or something. And uh, I'm a teenager and, and I'm at this convention and this, this guy is answering questions, this writer. And I don't remember the question, but this guy said, well, if you're writing a Superman story and you can make it into a Batman story, it's not a good Superman story. Right. And that was really a good piece of advice because what it, what it told, told me was, if you're telling a story about a character, it should be a story that can only exist for that character. Right. Because the character creates a story, right? And it's the same thing you're talking about what happened with stand-up, right? That there was a time when you could take a, a one-liner and give it to this comic or that comic or this comic or that comic. It didn't make any difference, Absolutely. right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, and it was like, okay, that's a funny joke, but it just exists on its own as a joke. Right. Um, this idea of being very personal, um, yeah, came along, again, like you say, after that crash. And I think it really did transform comedy from – it's a completely different thing than it used to be. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. So anyway, my, my whole thing about talking about my own stuff was really just to, to talk about, to see if there was anything that you could recall that you really just learned from observation or just doing it that you can recall, or did you just take it in through osmosis and have well, no idea? Yeah, what I think more of the latter, but I mean, it's what, what, what I learned is the only way to learn how to stand up is to do a lot of stand up. You know? Right. Because you're, you know, you can you can ta- you can observe all these things in other people, but translating them to your instrument, for lack of a better word, that just takes time, and that takes knowing yourself and 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 you know, finding how you own the stage. You know, right? It seemed to me it was about ten year, ten years before people started figuring out who they were. Like ten years was just learning how to be on stage. And, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, everyone's first hour of material is a collection of stuff that worked. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. And and so usually a comic's first hour, it can be really funny, but it's not going to be a cohesive thing. And then the really good comics will discard that and build their second hour, and you'll find that that's where their real voice starts to emerge. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, as I said earlier, it's like you're, when you're starting, you're just trying to build that first hour. And the way you do that is you keep the ones that work, you throw away the ones that don't, and then you just keep, keep building the ball of material. Yeah. You know, but when you're starting again from scratch and, and that scratch isn't ground zero, mm-hmm. you know, that scratch is now you're down the road and have a skill set, then you can start talking about what you actually want to talk about. And sure. Finding that compromise between what do I want to say and what is the audience willing to hear? But ultimately, I mean, the whole thing is commitment, you know? Yeah. Commitment, you know, a lack of commitment on stage is kryptonite, you know? Right. And the people who are magic on stage are a hundred percent committed. That's true. I've ever gotten past 97% committed. you You think so? Yeah. No, I think there's a governor on me that, um, that is just, there's a place I don't go past, you know, unless it's a huh. moment. You know? Right. I want to know, uh, let's unpack this a little bit. I want to know about this. All right. So, so what, what, what is it that is stopping you from going there? Do you think? Um, in some ways it's, a, I mean, this sounds almost arrogant, but it's a lack of neediness. Okay. 
you know, I don't feel a need to give everything in my soul to people in order to get approval. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I wasn't ever really seeking approval, I don't think. I was seeking an answer to a puzzle, you know. Does this joke work? (laughs) Right. But a joke is approval, right? I mean, if people laugh at it. It's not so much that these people like me because I told them the joke. It's like these people are saying, hey, you're right. Oh, I see. (laughs) I see. Uh, Okay. So you'd you'd rather be right. I'd rather be right than loved. Okay. <laughs> you know, when I come into a room full of strangers, you know, uh-huh. it's not true in my relationships, but no. you know, yeah. When I walk up in front of a group of people, it's like I'm on my own personal mission. Can I do this tonight in the best way possible? Make you know, can I make some of these jokes a little better tonight? Can I, can I commit that extra one percent? Can I, you know? Mm-hmm. But it's all about the craft of what I'm doing up there, and and. The audience is just the setting. Okay. Okay. So uh, is, the, is there, um, and I may be wrong, but is there an element of protection? Are you protecting anything by not going there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's why I'm not a great comic. I mean, I think the reason I became a writer was because everyone saw my stand-up and went, you're a great writer, which I went, okay, you don't think I'm a good performer. And then eventually I went, wait, okay, this writing, you know, by the okay. time I moved out to L.A., my stated goal was to get a writing job. Okay. My quiet goal was to be a star. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. And there was a great amount of resistance to me being a star, and there was very little resistance to me being a writer. Okay. So, All right. And then um, I, you know, and then I, and because comedy had crashed at that point, it's not like I was seeking a life on the road mm-hmm. anyway. So, sure. So the '90s was. Pretty much, I you know, once I started working TV jobs, I just did that for t- ten or fifteen years. I'm wondering about the story part of the story component now, because sure. it's one thing to write jokes, right? right? It's another thing to know what a story is and how to construct a story. And and uh, where did you learn that, or feel that you had the confidence to do it, or did you learn it on the job? How did that, how did that happen? I've learned everything in my whole career on the job. Okay. Know, from writing to directing, producing, you know, okay. okay. Um, and that's that bizarre confidence that I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. That makes me mm-hmm. just feel like, yeah, you can figure it out. TV, I think part of it was just so- soaking it up. Okay. That I'm an observational guy. You know, okay. I remember as a very young kid trying to decode Welcome Back Cotter and where the the studio audience was and, you know, and like noticing that that last beat where he was just telling a joke was that was for the audience, you know? Yeah. Again, with the Alan Sherman thing, I was noticing the audience. Okay. How they were reacting to the, to things, you know? So I, I just remember always sort of feeling like this was a, like the magic, the magic wasn't just what was on screen. The magic was that people got to do this. Right. You know, I had that too. Yeah. People I, were actually making this thing and I kind of wanted to be one of those people. And I think I started associating myself with that people long, long before I had a stated goal of wanting to be one. You know? Oh, sure. Yeah. That makes sense. But I had to, I did exactly that same thing where I was, I did it with the Mary Tyler Moore show, mostly in the Bob Newhart show um, and the shows of that, right. you know, in that sort of MTM 
seventies thing. Um, and they, you know, they were, those people were amazing writers and I, I learned a lot. I, I use everything I learned from those shows to this day. Yeah. Um, uh, and I still learn from them when I see them now, especially Mary. Um, and so, uh, so I, 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 the idea that people were doing it, it's almost beyond most people's comprehension, especially when they're young, right? right. They just, it just happens. But for some reason, I don't know how I knew people did it. And that fascinated me. That was yeah. more important. Yeah. And I wanted to know how they did it. I mean, even uh, to the point where now I have this show where I ask people how they do things, right? Uh, sure. Because it was really important to me. How do you do that? How does that work? Well, and that's been, my whole career has been jumping around from, from genre to genre and format to, you know, mm -hmm. I've done like every kind of comedy TV. I haven't just done sitcoms or just done talk, you know, I've done a talk show, a sitcom, an hour long, a, a single camera, you know, uh -huh. because I want to learn how these things met and I get bored very quickly. Okay. You know? so, so part of what makes me decide what the next thing is, is can I learn a new skill set doing this? Did you get on uh, Preaks because of Paul or because of Judd or because of both or because? Uh, it, was, it was because of both. It was, uh, Paul got me in the door. Okay. And then I, the weird, the, the weird, I mean, I, I kind of knew Judd, but not really. Okay. The weird thing was I had just come off of two years of being the head writer of America's Funniest Home Videos. I did that for two seasons. Between the two seasons, I, I, I co-created a show on FX called Fast Food Films, and I brought in Paul as a writer on the pilot. Okay. So I hired him as a writer first. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and he and I were in a band together at the time with Gruber and my wife. Okay. Um, so I was seeing Paul and hanging out a lot. Um, so it would have been rude of him to not at least get me a meeting for Freaks and Geeks. <laughs> um, but Judd, who had, been, who had just had a kid at the time, had been home on Saturday nights when the new America's Funniest Home Videos was running. And he loved what I was doing. And he noticed all the, all the good jokes I was getting into the show suddenly. Oh, cool. And he, would, and he pointed out these specific things. And he's the only person in all of show business who ever noticed the work on America's Funniest Home Videos. Like, literally, it's the only time it ever came up in a positive light. Wow. But it, got, but it helped get me the job on Freaks and Geeks. Oh, that's cool. As well as a list of story ideas I had submitted, which he liked one in particular. But. Uh-huh. So the combination of all those things got me that gig. So that show, uh, not only was it, it a weird thing because I knew so many people involved in it, but it was also uh, one of the best shows I think I'd ever seen. I still think that. I thought at the time I would write Paul. I'm like, Paul, this show is crazy. Like, and I'm a guy who knows the whole history of television and will like go, well, you know, well, Car 54, like I'll go back. Right. And um and so when I say that, I'm talking about all of television that at least that I know about. Um, there was an honesty in that show that I remember from Paul's stand-up, really. Yeah. Um, there was an honesty in that show that few shows ever reach, um, where it didn't feel so much like a TV show. It was almost like I was watching it, and even if the exact thing didn't happen to me, it felt like a bad memory of high school that did happen to me. Like, all the whole show, all right. the time. It was amazing that way. How did that... How did that happen? Well, as you said, first of all, Paul has, you know, Paul's yeah. got bottomless heart, you know. Right, yeah. But, uh, you know, and Judd had uh, bottomless chutzpah at the time. Mm -hmm. 
you know, so that was a good combination to start with. And I think from a writing perspective, one of the really smart things they did was uh, for the first week or two of us as a staff being together, we just spent time basically dumping our greatest humiliations of life onto the table in front of everybody, you know, mm -hmm. to mine for stories. But, sure. you know, and, and a lot of stories did come out of those. But more importantly, it's like, oh, okay, this is where the show is going to live. You know? Right. Understanding that, that that was where the show is coming from, from a very gut level, because we all had to sort of relive our own. Sure. You know, we had to sort of revisit those, those feelings that happened with those events. Uh, I think it was a hugely smart way to start. You know? It sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, I was, I was actually talking to, to Joel Madison once about some of the rules that I know of from uh, writing rooms, certain writing rooms in uh, television, history of television. And he had never said, he said he never really worked on a show that had rules, but it sounds like whether the show had rules in the writing room or whatever, I don't know. But the idea that there was sort of a template in that, we're going to go to this place, these embarrassing places, these very personal places, and that's where our stories are coming from. Um, it's the same as having a rule. In fact, it's better because um, you don't have to wonder about how far you can go in a way, right? You can yeah, go all absolutely. the way. Yeah. yeah. No, it just was an ethos. Yeah. How did you learn to write a show? Like, if you were writing jokes, how do you go from writing jokes to knowing how to write a show? I'm a smart guy. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> you know what? I know, I know. But you could be a smart person. But, well, I mean, it started, with, it started with getting a sitcom script when I was a stand-up in Minneapolis and trying to write a spec from that, looking okay. at the format. You know, okay. But I had internalized the rhythm of television so much growing up that the two-act sitcom rhythm was just there for me. It wasn't, okay. it, it wasn't a foreign language at all. It was all I had to do was learn how to format a script, you know? Sure. Having said that, um, you know, a lot of people won't sacrifice a joke for a real moment. Right. Excuse me. And that show did, it would sacrifice a joke for a real moment. There are scenes with no jokes. Right, right, you know, right, yeah. that, or like you said, and maybe this is part of going back to your origin story, um, it would be funny and serious all at once, often. Right, like they, life. Yeah, like life, like both things would be happening. Right. Like, and oh, that's devastating and funny and whatever, it's, it's complicated. But Gruber, go ahead. Gruber and I, Dave Gruber Allen, who... Yeah will always come up in our conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to have Groove on the show now because we uh, had the, uh, the honor of teaching a, uh, a master class last year at the uh, Harold Ramis film school in, oh, wow. uh, at, at second city in Chicago. And one of the things I don't, it was a Q and a session, but I, I, I said, look, I don't remember what the question was, but my answer was basically, look, jokes come last. Mm -hmm. you know? Jokes are, easy once you know who your characters are and where the story is headed you know but it was a revelation to these kids in this comedy filmmaking right program that someone would come in and say jokes come last but of course they do you know? right it's interesting i think that when you are younger 
often you approach everything from the outside. The outside is all there is. You don't know what's beyond that. So you just go, well, that's a nice shiny outside. And right. if it's jokes, that's where you are, right? If it's, um, you know, I've seen it with all kinds of crafts, all kinds of things like, you know, um, it's, it's dialogue that's clever if it's a screenwriter, right? It's not the story. It's like, I just have clever people saying clever things. It's like, right. yeah, but you need a story. Um, but they uh, they often do two. Th they do it because that's all they can see, and they also do it because they, if they're good at it, they can hide behind it, mm -hmm. right, and not have the other skills to back it up, right, um, and and just figure they don't have to develop those other skills. So um, yeah, some I, people only hear the rhythm. I'm the kind of person who can look at Seven Samurai and go, "Oh, you can make a western out of that." You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that doesn't need to be samurais. That doesn't need to be like at that kind of thing comes pretty easily to me or I can see a story that looks like one thing and go, well, that's just like this other thing that doesn't look like that thing. Right. Um, you know, I just see the underneath of it, but and I watch uh, with, I watch with the same, I, I watch, you know, I watch, I, I am unable to suspend my disbelief for virtually any story. You know, is that true? Because I am watching with a deconstructing eye, everything I watch. Right. But I see it as a curse of mine. That, you know, like I said, even when I was watching Welcome Back, Cotter as a kid, I was thinking about where the studio audience was in relation to the cast, you know? Yeah. So I'm always, like, zoomed out, you know? I'm always watching a drone shot of everything. So a lot of times people will say to me if I'm teaching or something, they'll say, um, well, I can't analyze a thing like you do because I, I get caught in the story and, and I can't. I'm like, oh, I'm not doing it that way. I'm not it's such a part of me. I'm not actually, in fact, I want to disappear into the story. I'd love to. And once in a while I do. Yeah, I do. I can. But what happens is I say, it's like if you, if you're a musician, I'm not a musician, but if you're a musician and you want to go hear somebody play and all you want to do is lose yourself in the music. But if somebody hits a bad note, you'll, yeah, yeah. it pulls you out. And that's what happens with me. Like, yeah. I'm just here to enjoy myself, right? I'm just here. And then it's like, oh, that's not right. That you don't do. That's not how that works. Well, and when I'm that's making not, things, that's my concern is it's always like, what is going to bump someone is what I call it. Yeah. You know? And I really always want to take those bumps out. And that's always what I'm looking for is what, is there an inconsistent moment here that's going to pull someone out of what I'm trying to do? Right. You know, and maybe, yeah. that, maybe that is because I'm so easily bumped. You know, that I'm hyper-conscious about it. But, but that, yeah, that's like, the strength. What I'm fascinated by is choices, you know, mm. is, is that, you know, and that's why I love directing is that it's just a series of choices and decisions you have to make. Yeah. And so when I'm watching something, it's very much like, do I understand why they made that choice? Right. And usually it's like, oh, of course they had to do that because it needs to serve this thing. Right in act three, you know, yeah. it has to, you know, I yeah. need to know that fact. And sometimes I go, bling, 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 they're telling me this fact. And sometimes I'm going, they did a good, you know, right. I'm especially good at hearing the, hearing those things, you know, as clues, because I believe, you know, I, I believe at the core, you know, every good screenplay, everything is there for a reason. Yeah. So, I think that's so I true. immediately go as a screenwriter why is that there? What's the reason? Oh, well, it must be this is coming. You know? Sure. Yeah. Um, and I then judge how artfully it was placed there. You know? Well, yeah, right. That, I mean, that's it, right? How, how, how well did they do it, right? How yeah. well did they hide the seams, right? right. Um, Buried the pipe. 
yeah cable yeah i mean it's got to be there you got to have cable right and and part of that is you know how it's done and sometimes that's hard to it's hard to know do i just know how it's done or does that really stand out so okay so you were saying that uh writing stories and this is the interesting thing too because there are serious moments right in freaks and geeks for instance so you were writing comedy what about the serious moments like how how easily did that come to you? Uh, I don't. I, I don't feel like it was. It didn't feel foreign to me. I guess. Okay. Okay. You know, it felt like you know, no matter what, you're making characters speak. You know. Right. And my desire, as both a comic and any kind of whatever I do, I want, I'm naturalistic. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, you know, and um. You know, I want dialogue to sound like people speaking and not like someone writing. Right. You know, and that, you know, in joke writing, you learn an economy of words that isn't always useful when you're writing drama. Mm-hmm. But it still kind of is, you know. Sure. It teaches you to get to the essence of a feeling in the quickest way. The excitement of writing drama for me that I remember from Freaks and Geeks was seeing actors discover things that I didn't even really get were fully there. Right. You know, and Linda Cardellini in particular wowed me a bunch of times with that, with just some subtle things that that's just like, wow, you just got so much more than I ever thought you could get out of that. It's amazing when an actor yeah. does that. It's, it's a, it's a, it's almost like watching a magic trick. It's an amazing. It really is. And that, you know, and that's the best feeling as a TV writer. Sure. When, whenever anything can continue to get better as opposed to worse, which it so often does in TV over the course of production, <laughs> right? You know, then it's an exciting feeling. Yeah. You know, so I think that was that was probably the biggest revelation to me is um, that there were surprises to be had mm-hmm. uh, in writing drama. Sure. Whereas you know, jokes are jokes tend to be fairly precise. Right. You know. They are, they're, you know, depending on how good an actor is there, they can change things and still make the joke work. Right. But generally, jokes are designed to work in a very specific way, whereas human emotion is a unpredictable thing. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Lowell Gaines and Bob Lou Mandel were talking, I think, about working, writing for, I think it was Steve Martin for Parenthood. And they were, they were like, we don't know. He doesn't he doesn't speak in our rhythm. Right. You know, so interesting. I mean, he's Steve Martin, so he made it work because he's Steve Martin. But it's interesting. They knew they had a rhythm and they knew, I think it was Steve Martin, didn't have it. Right? Like, so they knew, they were like, is our joke going to, is our style of humor going to work in that person's mouth? Which is a really interesting thing. Well, and I think, I think what helped me was I had, I had written for a lot of stand-ups. Oh, you had? Yeah. And okay. I, was, I was always able to write in their voice. Oh, well, there you, you know. go. But okay. one of the things that I got, you know, as a feature act, which is the, which is the opening act, you know, yeah. there's usually three acts, an opener, a feature, and a headliner. Right. And, I, you know, when I was a feature act, I had a lot of headliners who would take me out on the road with them because they'd end up with a half dozen new jokes every time. Because <laughs> uh-huh. I'd watch their act five times, you know. Right. What else was I going to do but add taglines and, you know. Right, yeah. And so I had a, or there was also guys who just, you know, there weren't that many comics in that day who were serious joke writers. They had their act and they do it every night. Right. 
but event, occasionally I'd hook up with somebody like Jeff Stilson or someone mm-hmm. who also became a TV writer, mm-hmm. um, you know, who's into the craft or Jeff Cesario and I hit it off because we were just joke nerds. Yeah. You know, and so I'd find a headliner and they bring me out. We'd both write all week and, you know, yeah. each day we'd sit there with index cards and that night we'd go try them. And it was so much fun. I want to get back on this thing you talked about uh, making people sound natural. I don't, I, I don't know that I, that I can even articulate the learning process. I feel like it was more, it's more just like you write and then read it and go, does that sound like how a person talks? You know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's literally, you have to say it out loud. Right. You know, but you know, some of it is just an ear. So, you know, and I think I have a good ear, you know, mm-hmm. for how people speak. And I think being a comedian, you also have, sort of extra sensitivities to how people react to information. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I think, you know, maybe that my ear was developed that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately it's, you know, I think so much of writing and directing and everything is taste, you know, mm-hmm. and you apply your taste to things, you know, and my taste has a, sensitive ear for unnatural dialogue and forced uh, uh you know forced pipe and right you know but i but you're going well you know what you go for in comedy and what you go for in drama are the same thing which is truth right you know and so you have to use your taste to, to, to establish does this sound true coming out of this character's mouth? Does, right. this feel, does this feel, you know, on the most basic level, does this feel like other things I've seen, seen this character say already? Mm-hmm. You know, but more than that, it's just like, you have to be able to feel if it feels true, you know? Yeah. But you and said, so- and give a shit. Yeah. Well, you said something that people often don't think about, which is like, there are books about how to write dialogue or how to write dialogue that doesn't suck. And, you know, and I, and I always think, this is not a book anybody needs. The only thing they need to know how to do is listen to people. Right. Like, and that's why it's called having an ear. Yeah. Right. Because it's like, well, go listen to people. They're all over the place. Listen to them. Talk, listen to yourself. Talk, listen to, you know, if you don't understand that your job as a storyteller is to um, use people and their interactions and their emotions as your material to create, then you're not going to be able to create. You could read a million books on how to write good dialogue, but if you don't listen to people talk, it's never going to work. Right. And I think you always have to understand. I mean, one of the things that I think you can always measure your dialogue against is this philosophy of every character, just like every human has an agenda in every interaction, you know, Mm -hmm. you and I, we each have an agenda. You have an agenda that you, you want to do an interesting show. I have an agenda. I don't want to look like an asshole on your show. Yeah. You know, I want to impress you with how smart I am. I want to be funny. I want to be charm. You know, mm-hmm. those are my agendas in a situation like this. You know? mm-hmm. um, so if I'm writing this scene, I have to know that about the character, Josh and the character, Brian, you know, right. That they each have some, uh, some, some skin in the game in this scene. Mm-hmm. So how are they going to behave in order to achieve that goal? Right. A lot of people don't think that way. Like I always ask myself what a character is not saying. Right. What were they not saying? Right. I always know what's underneath everything they say. I always could answer, well, what they're really saying is this, but this is what they're right. saying on the top. Right. Um, but a lot of people don't think that way. So they're, again, they're stuck on the surface. 
Right. Somebody says this funny thing. The next person says this clever thing. Somebody says this wise thing, you know, and it's not, it's almost like they're not writing dialogue, but they're writing. Um, they're filling a page. They're filling a page or they're writing my monologues that happen next to each other. Right. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. And this, it's a bunch. It's yeah. It's someone, it's one person's voice being channeled through, <laughs> through different tone. Different yeah. Parts. Yeah. Um, and often I find that people, uh, uh, a lot of writers, all their characters will sound like one person. Yeah. They won't yeah. sound, they won't like people who tell me they write good dialogue often don't write good dialogue. And what I mean by that is all their characters sound like them and they sound all the same. Right. So, the, yeah. yeah. You, yes. You, you can be good at writing snappy, snappy sentences. Right. But that, that's not good dialogue always. Right. Um, and in fact, you know, I was just watching, I was just talking to um, uh, Carl Godlieb. Do you know Carl Godlieb? I know him from interviewing him. I okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, I just interviewed him. Um, it was really great to, to, he's just a great guy to talk to. I, yeah. I hope you had yeah. a good experience. He's, he seems like a really sweet dude. But we were talking and I brought up Places in the Heart because I was talking about Robert Benton, who's one of my favorite uh, writer directors. Yeah. And, and so I watched Places in the Heart last night because I'm like, oh, I haven't seen that movie for a while. And there's some unbelievably beautiful, subtle work in there. And, and what he does so well often is not talk, right. you know, and he knows what not to say and he knows how to make that mean everything. It's the um, most amazing kind of writing. Um, talk about economy. Like it's so economical, his writing. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And Places in the Heart is a particularly good example of how economical his writing can be and how powerful his writing can be because of it. Um, and did he write and direct that? I'm sorry? Is that written and directed? By Robert Benton? Yeah. There's a, you have an advantage when you're directing something that mm -hmm. you're writing mm -hmm. that you, A, you're going to be there. Right. And, but if you're a director and you trust actors, you know how much a good actor can communicate without dialogue. Right. And if you can trust that while you're writing, you know, then you've got not only not only have you made your job easier as a director, you've made something something that an interesting actor wants to do. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I always say it's uh, you leave breathing room. Yeah, you know, you leave breathing room in there. They'll they'll fill it. Don't worry. You know, it looks sparse on the page, but it'll be full. Right. You know, if it's full of something, if there's something there, right? Yeah, you know, something to play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a scene in, in places in the heart where Sally field is going, she's trying to get something from the bank. She's trying to, anyway, it, her, her husband has died and she has to go to the bank a lot and ask them for extensions and things on money. She owes anyway, she's at the bank and she wants something. And the guy's like, the banker's like, I, I don't know if I can do that. And he, she says, well, she, he says, I have to ask my, my boss, my supervisor. And she says, well, ask him. And he's like, oh, okay, he doesn't want to do this. But he, anyway, the great thing is you stay with her as he goes off and asks you, and you can see her, see them. Right. But you don't hear their conversation because their conversation is just a bunch of information that won't, that carries no emotion. Right. All the, he sticks with the emotion all the time. It's really interesting. It's like, where's the emotion? That's where he hangs. It's really amazing. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. yeah he was, Smart guy. Yeah. One of the great screenwriting notes that I've heard, and I don't even know whose it is, is, just, is 
get into a scene as late as possible and get out as early as early possible. as possible. William Goldman used to say it. Um, um, Probably his. Yeah. He had a lot of things to say. Um, Robert Benton is really good at that. You know, it sounds like uh, you um, are conscious of a lot of your learning and completely uh, all, all the other comes through osmosis. I'm very conscious of most of the things. I Like, that's a thing I learned. I can tell you where I learned it. I can tell, it who, tell you who I learned it from. I'm a dilettante, I, and I just jump right in and do it mm-hmm. and sort of – you know, I, it's you know, it's not fake until you make it because I don't feel like I'm actually faking it. Mm-hmm. But you know, I feel like the the stuff I don't know in a in a creative situation now is generally superficial. Okay, it's generally more of a nuts and bolts thing, and I'm I'm going into any situation at this point trusting my instincts and mm-hmm. experience. You know, right? Sure, sure. You know, uh, I, I never, you know, I've directed a couple of movies now. I never directed. I never took a filmmaking class, but I'd been on sets and watch, been observing what people had been doing for twenty years. Because it's been a while. I mean, you for for the uh, the years of experience you have, you're, you're you're pretty young guy having the experiences. You know, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, so. I'm forty nine and I'm thirty four years into my career. So. Yeah, yeah. So what you're talking about, about taking that thing about the actors and, you know, yeah, I have to say that there is, there's the converse experience on a lot of shows where you're constantly discovering what your actors can't do. Oh, sure. You know, and the things that you shouldn't give them and the kind of jokes that they can't pull off, you know, mm-hmm. so to be in a situation where those surprises are mostly positive surprises. Yeah. Rare, you know? Yeah, sure. Sure. Going back to uh, Lowell Gans and Bob Lou Mandel, I think it was Lowell Gans. Um, both of those guys who I think are amazing writers, but I think Lowell Gans, when he was on the Odd Couple TV show, uh-huh. I think it was Lowell, uh, said uh, that the best lesson he ever got in writing was from Jack Klugman, who's one of the actors on the show for people who don't know. And uh, Jack Klugman would read the script and then, and then yell at Lowell Gans every day and say, what do I want? It's kind of like what you're talking about, right? What's the what's the agenda that the person has? So he's like, I can't play this. What do I want? What does the character want? And he would yell it in his face every day. <laughs> like, but what do I want? Um, because he needed something to play. Right. And um, that, he said, taught, was the best lesson he ever got about how to write. Knowing that, just what you were talking about. Knowing what each character wants. Yeah, if you're, you know, if you're use, just using your stories as pawns to spit out story points to get you to the next scene, then the scene's not happening. The scene's not necessary or the scene is flawed. Right. You know? Yeah. And I think that like with stand-up, it can take a while to get to that place for people. You know, it's almost like um, I noticed this with writers that often they are writing something and they want the writing experience to be the same as the reading experience. They're different experiences, but they want them to be the same experience. And so when they're writing, they, they, um, they are looking at the results. They're not looking at the inside. They're not going, and so it's like, when I read a book and I see this crazy line and this is a creative thing and this turn of phrase, they're not looking at the why, they're not getting underneath it. And right. so their stuff stays on the surface. Right. Um, but I, I see that a lot where people, um, uh, have to do it long enough to then go, well, what's happening underneath here? 
What's happening? You know, and it well, takes a while. Know, you always know a new writer when they're trying to show how good a writer they are in the stage directions. Right. You know, when yeah. they're trying to write prose in the stage directions instead of yes instructions <laughs> for the production you know? right yeah <laughs> there's a, a story i don't know if it's true uh but i it sounds true um where there was i think it was f scott fitzgerald or somebody was writing uh some novelist was writing for movies it might have been f scott fitzgerald and uh, everybody loved the script all the readers everybody loved it and they took it to the studio head and he read the script and he and he and he threw it back at the people who brought it to him, and he said, "You can't shoot adjectives. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. You, you know, you can't. So this is not a good script. But people right. often confuse that people. It's really interesting to watch how people get confused about uh, writing that is performed, that is meant to be performed, and writing that is meant to be read. They're different things. Absolutely, no. Yeah, a, a screenplay is not a literary work." really right it's not um which is funny because i think the problem uh shakespeare is our problem here yeah because shakespeare although he did write some things that are meant to be read shakespeare was meant to be performed shakespeare is a screenwriter right yeah. <laughs> you know, right shakespeare doesn't belong in the realm of literature he belongs in the realm of drama right Right. right? Literature stole him from us. Yeah, he didn't even write them down himself. For I know. I, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know. So it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be read. Right. Um, it was meant to be performed and experienced that way. Um, and so uh, I think, but we've made him into literature, and I think that actually confuses the issue about what, what, a, what a dramatist should be doing, what a, what a screenwriter or... Oh, maybe. Yeah. I, I, I knew a woman who had studied playwriting in uh, college. She majored in it. And I would talk to her about story and she goes, you know, I have a degree in this. We never talked about story at all. Never came up. Wow. Like, yeah. Like we talk about all these other things, talk about the history of theater, talk about this or that. We talk about, whoa, look, look at this Shakespeare, Shakespeare sonnet, blah, blah, blah. We never talked about, never talked about uh, stories. Right. Stories actually get uh, uh, ignored often. And so people focus on... Well, they're the hardest. Right. They are. I mean, they just are. You know, if you're on a writing staff on a TV show, the days you dread are breaking out a story. Yeah, and some people are really, really great at it, and other people really struggle with it. But they are hard. Yeah. It's the hardest part. Right. <laughs> uh, and so people ignore it. My problem, is, my problem as a storyteller is my comedy, uh, my innate comedy soul, which is... Mm -hmm say the biggest thing you can in the fewest possible words, you know? Right. My, my, my best skill is to encapsulate, you know, mm -hmm. take something, boil it down to this idea where the sentence is a story, you know? Right. And so it, it, it is a challenge for me to, to expand mm -hmm. into longer form storytelling. Sometimes the desire to want to do it is hard to tap into. Really? <clears throat> yeah. When you do tap into it, how does that feel? When you're done, when is there a satisfaction that having done it, or you just? Yeah, there's always satisfaction having done it. But I think you know, my f I found that like documentary storytelling to me is 
taps into my storytelling gift probably the best because okay. it, it allows me to carve out and identify theme based on all this information, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to the limit, the limiting quality of it, which is I can only tell a story based on the footage I have. Right. Or the audio and video that I can put together. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to the universe is possible and it's only a question of your imagination. You know, oh, right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm much, I'm much more comfortable in finding the clever way to combine you know, these pieces. You know, the thing about documentary things is that it's writing and shooting all at once. You know? Right. Yeah. When you find that moment and put it in and you're editing and it works, not only have you just written that moment, you've shot it. Right. Right. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. 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 So that's highly satisfying. You know? mm-hmm. It's not a blank page. You know? Right. The blank page. Let's talk about the blank page because that is um, a scary thing. Yeah. The blank page, and um, it it's always scary. It's always hard. Starting is always the hardest part for me. Like I'll do anything not to start. Sure. Um, but I have learned to embrace that procrastination because I've embraced it as part of my process. Yeah, me too. Have you? Yeah. Like oh, I'm still working. It just. Wow looks like I'm going out to get a cup of coffee. Right. I'm working. Um, it looks like I'm having a conversation with these people, but I'm working because when I get that, when I do sit down, things come because my, my subconscious has gone to work on it. Yeah. And I know that um, I haven't just walked away. And I think that there's something about putting things down. That means that then it's permanent in some way. And then I'm readjusting and fixing this thing. It's hard for me to throw it out if I right. write it down. Right. So I throw things out before I write them down. As do I. I Is that now, the way you- My first drafts are really third or fourth drafts because I just won't put, I won't commit to writing it until I've actually written it in my head generally. Right, yeah, that's the, I it's, it's, I don't, I can't use paper as a workbench very yeah. well. And I'm not one of those people who can just plow through a first draft and just get a bunch of shit on paper and say, I'll rewrite it. You know, right. I, it has to work for me before I can move on generally. Yeah. That's the way I am too. I'm not good at placeholders. I've gotten better over the years of going this, you know, of identifying which problems are self-contained and which ones have ramifications downstream. Sure. So the ones that are self-contained, I can go, I can do a placeholder. And sure. Go, I'll get a better joke. I'll get a better, whatever at that spot. Mm-hmm. But if, if there's ramifications of that, it's, it's got to be pretty locked in before I can plow. That's, ex- that's exactly how I am. It's a little bit more than a placeholder usually before I can move on and a little right. bit less than a... But it, you ain't, know? <laughs> it, ain't, it ain't it. It ain't it. But uh, <laughs> sometimes you, I have to go further on before I know what the it is. Right. And then I'll go back and fix that before I'm done. <laughs> By the time I print the thing out or send it out or whatever, it is... Um, I have fixed that before I finish the script, like, so right. I'll, you yeah, know, it goes on a to-do list sort of. Yeah. Yeah. But because otherwise you, I think you can get slowed down there. Like oh, you're not moving forward. And right. that's, that's uh, the momentum can be a problem to stop and start that momentum can be a problem. Right. Um, and I know people will sometimes loop first 10 pages and then first 10 pages and then first 10 pages and then first 10 pages and loop because they have to do all those drafts 
but I, I'd rather not do all that typing before I need to and just do yeah, it up here and go. Too. Yeah. I also have um, the superpower of being able to see the whole thing. Yeah. A lot of people can't. Like, I don't. I can't often. Yeah. But for whatever reason, I can. And so, um, like, people use the cards and all of that. I don't need those cards. They don't make any sense to me. I don't need that. I, like, I know why everything exists, so I don't need the cards. Like, oh, I had this scene. It's like, you can't move my scenes around because it's all cause and effect, right? So right. it's really easy for me to keep track, um, uh, which makes it hard, which has made it hard for me to write with other people in the past. Sure. Because uh, they can't hold that. And I can like, there's a lot of stuff I'm not good at. So I'm not, but that my, is my particular superpower. So, um, Are you good though at communicating what's in your head to that person before you start. Yeah, I think so. so they have a chance. Yes, I think so. Um, the difference is, um, I always adhere very strongly to the armature. What's the point of this piece? Right. Right. When somebody comes with an idea that's off armature, then I know it. Sure. I go, so I go, well, that doesn't, that's not going to work. And they're like, you didn't even think about it. It's like, I did. It just doesn't look like I did because I instantly could right. see all of the ramifications. I could see the domino effect, right? Because my brain is so cause and effect when it comes to story that I go, well, if you say that or do this, that means, you know, it goes over here instead of over here is where we're going. Yeah. And a lot of people see the virtue in exploring every avenue and I'm much more like you where it's like, no, there's, there's a way through and I see it. Following. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and sometimes people do have to, but it's, it's interesting talking about being right. It's interesting when people explore every Avenue and then come back around to where you, yes. Like I see, I told you that's where that was. Right. right. That well, was, that, yeah. That, yeah. That puts yeah. you in an arrogant position too. And, yeah, it does. Because, yeah, but that's, you know, that tends to be why I like to be in charge of projects, why I'm, you know, head writer, you know, because, and a lot of the time I, 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 I can articulate that about myself too, which is when it comes to jokes, it's going to have to come through me, you know. Right. The, the final phrasing of this joke is going to have to be in the language I'm speaking for this joke. So I can say to, to the writers, just, you know, you don't have to, craft just give me the keyword of the joke what's the funny part and then we'll write the joke you know right but don't don't make me say it in your words i'll give you credit for the joke right <laughs> but don't make me say it exactly how you're pitching it you know? right right is it because see that that sounds very similar to what i'm talking about with the overall story right, right. you have you know it's these words this is how it works it doesn't work another way it works right. this way this is the best way or it might, but this is the way we're, this is the way it works, the way we're, for how we're working on it, you know? Right. You can't say that stories only work one way because they don't, you know? Um, no, they do. No, I mean, once you've had it, once you've cracked it in your way, then that's the way. Well, that's what I mean. Right. So, right. So like, well, this is the direction we're going in. Like you yeah. can't, a building can look a lot of different ways, but this is the foundation that we built. So. Yeah. Right. You have to agree on the building you're building. <laughs> right. Yeah. Before you start. But, right. you know, but in that, in the blueprint phase, you know, sure. it can be anything. It can be shaped like a donut or it could be shaped like a skyscraper. Yeah. Know? And that's, that's true. 
yes, a story can be anything. But once you've built the foundation for a donut, and that's what the blueprints say, you got to make a donut. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. the project head has to be able to go, no, that's not donut related. You know? Right. And that's all, that's all I'm saying. So in that way, there is a right way. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. Once, once all those things are stipulated among the participants, you know yeah. what I mean? Yes. You know? Well, I, I have a, a, a writer friend who talks about it like a funnel. He says, the top of the funnel, you have a lot of choices. Right. 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 But once you start making choices, your choice is narrow. Right. Right. Because right. you still have to, you have to work within this framework. You can't add things. You can't bring things in. So it gets, your choices get narrower and narrower. Right. You can't just bring things in because you think they're cool or funny or clever or, or exciting or whatever it is you think you're doing. No, um, but there it, are people who get afraid of leaving something on the table. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like there's, you know, I think Judd Apatow is a lot like that, which you learned from Chandler. Mm -hmm. which, which is, you know, leave no stone unturned. Sure. You know, and that's not how I approach it. It's like if I find, you know, if I find the magic slug under the first rock. You know, right, yeah, stop looking. Generally, it's the second or third rock, but, you know. Right, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very similar that way. Um, but there's also uh, people who have certain skill sets, and, you, and I feel like, it's like, like I'm not good at math. So if somebody says, the answer to that is this. I'll go, well, you're good at math and I'm not. So I'm going to believe you on that, right? right. I'm not going to question it. Well, let me, I got to do, let me, I'm going to get a calculator and I'm going to figure this out. I, you know, at a certain point, you've got to know what everybody's skill sets are too. Right. You know, and I will acquiesce like, oh, you know what? That's your skill set. You know, if we're writing something together and you're like, this should be the joke. I'd be like, he's right about the joke. I'm not going to fight him on the joke. I might fight on structure. I might fight on some other thing. I'm not going to fight you on the joke. Right. You know, I think you have to know where your strengths are and you have to know where your weaknesses are or where you're not as strong or not as weak um, when you're collaborating. I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think it's weird when people start to step into another person's territory. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think you can, you can end up bullying the other person, though, too. That. Maybe I'm a bully. Maybe that's what I've maybe, figured out about maybe myself. Maybe I am, too. But Yeah. Uh, you know, but if, you know, if you, if, if I say you and I were writing and I suddenly go, you know, I'm the joke guy. And you oh, say, no, you know no, I mean? you don't have to do that. I no, have to do that. I understand that. But right. if, if those, if those walls between tasks start to harden, then I do think you're starting to miss something. Well, I think that can be true. I think that can be true. Yeah. But I think that there's a. I think there's so a. I would be a dick to accept that I'm the only guy. I'm the ultimate authority on every joke. No, that's true. Uh, the other thing too is uh, I've never understood why you wouldn't just let an actor do what they thought was right and then go, yeah, let's try it. Like if I'm directing an actor and they have an idea, in fact, I don't let them tell me the idea. Don't tell me because I might say no. Right. Right. I might not. I might say no, not understanding what you're saying. Right. Do it, and then we'll figure it out. Um, but that's me trusting them. Right. Right? They're and, in yeah. it. Yeah. And that, but that's a case-by-case -case thing, too. Right. It's actor to actor. There's plenty of actors with horrible ideas who are going to slow your day down. <laughs> well, that's true, too. <laughs> that's true, too. But I think if they feel like you'll listen. Oh, yeah. Genuinely listen. Yeah. Then sometimes they'll go, okay, you're right, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, the best directors are, are the ones that, that can hear an idea on set. Yeah. 
that's not theirs. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, but, you know, often their agenda is I better seem smart. I better seem in control. I better seem like I know everything. Yeah. Well, so much, you know, there's so many, I think, just terrified directors. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, and I also think it's a, it's a rare it's a rare set of skills where, you know, storytelling prowess, visual prowess, people skills all line up in one person, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and you see that, that's one of the nice things about doing single camera TV is you get to see a lot of directors work. Right. And you see the difference between the ones who are terrified of actors, you know, right. barely talk to the actors cause it's all in their head and it's all visual. Right. You know, mm-hmm. it's a shot list. The day is a shot list in their head. You know? Right. And they alienate the hell out of actors because they aren't connecting with them and giving them the feedback that they need right. to feel good about what they're doing. You know? Yeah. And that's part of it. And that's part of the people person equation of being a director. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've never, well, I think it's rare that every, all those skills line up in one person, you know, and it's, I don't know that they're all necessary to make great movies. Hitchcock is right. apparently a bastard to every actor. Right. Know? Yeah. That's true. He was not a nice person. Women. Yeah. But, but he had no respect for them either. Right. You know? Oh, for actors? Yeah, no, he didn't. Yeah, they were meat puppets to him. <laughs> right, but, yeah. But you have to have a lot of uh, gravitas for an actor to not turn on you and if you're treating him that way. Just a couple more questions about how what you think your job is. It's dual purpose, I think. I okay. mean, the, fir- the first job is laying out a compelling story, literally a compelling story, something right. that is interesting to watch where you're going to wonder what's happening. You aren't bored. You Mm -hmm. aren't, you know, you aren't ahead of it. Right. You know, you're on the ride. I mean, that's the, that's obviously the basic thing, you know, then Mm -hmm. your second job as a writer while you're working on this is to figure out what that story is about. You know, right. Right. I believe very much of the difference between what a movie's story is and what a movie is about. Those are two. Right. Sure. Two different things. Most people don't, know that those are two different things. Yeah, but they're very different things. They are very and, different things. And sometimes as a writer, you don't know what your script is about until after you've written it. And then you can go back and be more deliberate about making it about that. But yeah. I believe that the- sometimes themes emerge unconsciously. And P- People say and that. Astute, you can capture what those themes are. You can yeah. see what's coming out of you that you didn't know was coming out of you. Yeah. Then, people, people say that. I've never had that experience. No, but if, I mean, I think if, because I think if you're looking, you don't have a sense of discovery of a story either. You just have, you have the full thing there and you're. you're There's discoveries along the way. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it comes out a lot more whole cloth for you than it does for most people. Yeah. I think that's just true. Yeah. Yeah. Jealous as shit about that. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's, it's dental work for me because I'm, I'm highly sensitive to the artificial. Yes. Even even me sitting here imagining a story to tell has a thing of artificiality about it that I don't get into. You know, there's, there's, you know, I'm not a natural writer. I, I, like I said, I was kind of tricked into being a writer because I wasn't a good enough performer. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know, so I wasn't someone who grew up wanting to tell stories. I wanted to make stuff. Right. I wanted to make showbiz product. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't as pure as storytelling. It wasn't until later that I started writing and learning about the art of storytelling that there's, there's, you know, a lifetime shit to learn there. 
Right. Uh, but it's not, I'm not someone who takes joy from sitting alone in a room writing, even if it's going well. Oh yeah. No, I don't like it either. I, yeah. I can't stand it. Um, I like thinking of things and then I like them when they're done. So I have to get past the artificiality of, I'm telling a story because I say it's important to tell the story. Mm. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no external stimulus saying the world needs you to write a script. You know, mm -hmm. it's self-generated. It's saying I, it's time to write a script. Now I have to think of a story. You know, it's not, right. It's not. I've got a story to tell, baby. You know, right. And they don't come to me. You know, when they do come to me, I'm you know. I make a movie or I make something. Right. You know, right. Come to me whole. I'm never more excited than that. Sure. If I can see the whole thing the way you do, mm -hmm. then I'm so on board. I mean, that's what made me make this Michael Day Bar thing is I, once I saw the story, I was like, I can tell that story. Yeah. It's fine. I'm just the opposite. Like I couldn't discover a story along the way. It wouldn't make sense to me. I wouldn't know what to write. I wouldn't have, I would have no idea how to put a word on the page without knowing exactly where I was going. I mean, I've started too many screenplays without outlines to dispute it. Yeah, they just, they, you don't know what's happening. So it's really hard for me to discover what I'm writing about. Um, in the do, way you, that, do you outline? My outline is very rough. Yeah. Partially because I guess I can see it, right? So my outline is pretty rough. It's just sort of, um, I know what my first act is generally. Like, I need to do this so that you understand act two, right? What the so stakes are, who the character Is it a beat sheet that no, you're working off it's of? Not, it's not, it's not, uh, it's, no. It's just a few points. Uh, a few points to uh, talk about what I need to do in act one, what needs to happen in act one, what needs to happen in the first act, half of act two, uh, what needs to happen in the second half of act two, and then act three. For instance, uh, I often use in class this idea that you are, if you're writing a story about like, let's say, um, a rich person loses all his money, right? Like, so, okay, if a rich person loses all his money, I already know losing all the money is the end of act one, right? I already know that, right? right. So, okay, so what's act one? Act one is, who is this person with money? How do they feel about money? How do they live with money? Like, you know, how extravagant is their life? Right. Um, how do they feel about how money makes them important or whatever in the world or how do they. Right. And it might be, OK, I need to do that. Now, I may not know what those things are yet. Right. Right. But I know that's what that the function of that act is. But my right? question is from your from that from even that is person loses all their money. You say, you know, that at the end of act, that's the end of act one. Right. I go, well, what if that's the opening scene and the end of act one is you get a chance to get your money back. There's still something you have to establish in act one. If it's about getting the money back, then act one, because I can't care about somebody I don't know. No, you have, if someone has experienced a change, you have to have some sense of what they were before that change. Right. And that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Right. That's the important part, right? Like, uh, I got to know who they are. Right. Because I, I, I often do the opposite story. I go, let's take a poor person who wins the lottery. Same story. Same. But now I know, OK, they're poor. What is that like? They're homeless or whatever. What is that like? How do homeless people get food? How do they what's their relationship to money? What do they think their life would be if they had money? All those things would have to go in act one, at least in this the way I'm talking about it. 
Um, and I would know that. And so I would write that down, like, okay, I got to find out how a person lives. Who's, and then I would do my research and make sure that it was accurate. Right. Um, but I would go, okay, I just have to know how homeless people live. Right. Um, I know I have to set up the lottery ticket somewhere in here if they're going to win the lottery and whatever. And then boom, they win the lottery. And then, and then I go, okay, the first half of act two, now depending on your construction, because the first curtain that act one is either going to be conflict losing the money or opportunity getting money right it's one or the other right. when it's opportunity then there's a honeymoon period like i call the ghostbusters get famous right there's a honeymoon period of right. of wow look i have all this money you know but then at the middle there's some shift an obstacle to that happiness yes yeah there's some shift in the middle that changes things like oh wait a minute before I had friends who cared about me because of me, now I don't know if these people like me because I have money or if they like me, for instance. Right. Right. So that changes the nature of the conflict. Right. And then, so I know, okay, so I got to change the nature of the conflict and now I got to deal with that in act two or the second half of act two. And then I have to figure out how that's going to resolve. Is this person going to get rid of all their money? Or are they going to do something with them? Whatever. But whatever that resolution is, I go, okay. And then that's act three. So given act one and act two, this is who this person is. That's act three. Well, and we also have to establish what that person wants in act one. Oh yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. What, what is if, that person's goal? And you know, Right. That's unstated. Yeah. That has to be there too, right? So you already know kind of what, if you're saying, if, I don't know what your theme is, but let's say your armature is uh, some things are more important than money, which is the my go-to theme for some reason. But let's that's what you're saying, then that tells you what you need to do along the way too, because you're proving that point all the way through. Right. Right? Right. So I don't need to know everything that happens that proves that. I just have to be, open to all the things that could prove that yeah you have to know the mission and does that do these things stack up against the mission statement right right and if it doesn't then i go well that doesn't work and then i don't have to deal with it or or you know but it's it can be hard in that you are looking you, it's a more precise way of working right so right. you're looking for a thing that proves or disproves that armature in a very specific way um right. But, it, but then it shapes your scenes, it shapes your characters, it shapes everything. Um, and maybe the discovery comes out of, oh, I didn't realize that character was going to say that that way. Or I didn't realize the scene was going to go this way when I'm trying to prove this. Like, I, there's discovery in it. Well, yeah, because the third variable is do all these things in a way that other people haven't already done. Them. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's easy enough to do if you're being organic to the piece. Right. Right. If you know who your characters are. Yeah. If you know who your characters are and you're being organic, then it will come out through your voice and you'll be fine. And if you've written human characters as opposed to movie characters. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but if you're thinking about the movie version, yeah, then you're just going to imitate. Right. But if you if it's not the movie version, it, it might on the surface look like something somebody else has done, but if it's, if it's completely organic to your process, it won't feel like that. Yeah, no, I think that again, that then, then we're talking about taste as right, part, of right. the, part of the toolkit. I feel like I eliminate, I, I try to eliminate taste. How do you uh, I, I feel like I try to eliminate taste in the same way you would eliminate taste. If you were building a bridge, this is the math that makes a bridge stand up. Right. Right. right? 
I, I don't have any taste about that. This is the ground we're building on. This is the kind of foundation it needs to build on that ground. If we don't do it that way, it's going to sink. Like, taste is the color of the bridge or maybe the shape of the bridge, right? Well, but yeah, but those are, but those are, those but the, are real considerations. Not the color for, so much, but the shape of the bridge, certainly. The is. shape of the bridge, for me, comes out of the f- function of the bridge. But everyone who's writing a three-act screenplay is then, is then using the same bridge blueprint which in some ways they are if they're writing a three act, you know <laughs> yeah yeah three act screenplay but um but i don't know i mean i i do i i don't see how you eliminate taste because ultimately the choices you make are your taste you know the a suspension bridge in uh wisconsin you know looks different than the suspension bridge by in boston outside the boston garden there but they're still serving the very so they're serving the same purpose. One's cool, one's not. You know, this is the sand that we're building on, right? 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 right. There's not a right or wrong in the abstract. Right. There's a right or wrong in this specific instance. Right. That building won't stand. You can build it that way. It won't stand. Right. You know what I mean? The, if the math is off, the math is off. Um, I remember I I uh, I knew a guy in art school, and. Uh, he was going to an art school that was way more fine artsy than he wanted. He really wanted, he goes, I don't understand this school because if your anatomy's off, then your anatomy's off. Right. Right. If your, if your perspective is off, then it's off. He didn't mean that you couldn't exaggerate anatomy, that you couldn't do things with it, but he's like, I'm trying to learn how to draw and they're not teaching me how to draw the human form. So they have to filter it through the way I think it's almost not taste. It's how you see. Right. And I'm not sure if that's taste, right? I think you can just see things differently based on your experience, based on a bunch of other things, but it right. may not be taste. Um, well, I mean, I think, I think it's the, it's the path to taste, you know, but I don't, I don't think that in and of itself is, is taste. You know? Yeah. I think how you see is what is, is part of your, you know, our brains and our wiring. Right. How we perceive is one thing. Right. But I think taste comes where, when we're then projecting it back out, when we're reflecting. It's a weird thing. I, what, a lot of times people will say, oh, I have different tastes than you when they're talking about something. I go, I, taste was not part of my thing. It, right. was, okay. it was, does that work? That thing confused me. That's why I didn't like that movie. Right? Like, because right. I didn't know what was happening and their job was to communicate with me, that's bad. Right. Oh, you don't like science fiction. I don't care. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? I don't care. I only care if they communicated with me. Right. And if they haven't done that, or if they've confused me in a way that they didn't mean to confuse me, right, right then, I, then I was like, well, that's not working. That's, they're the ones who said that they wanted to tell me a story, not me. Right, right. And if, yeah, but, <laughs> I, you know, but, I, but I do think that, yeah, I mean, that ultimately there is an element of taste there in the sense of there are different things about movies that feed people differently. You know, my son, my stepson is a visual artist. Right. So the way that he evaluates things is a hundred percent different than the way I evaluate things. Right. And the value, I mean, the, he, something that I could see as a mess could be great to him because it fulfilled the visual storytelling need that I didn't feel. I argue with my 
artist friends all the time about this because yeah. I know a lot of illustrators and, and they're like, that's a great movie. I'm like, that movie's, here's the thing. You can, they think it's working because it lights up their brain. Right. Right. If it was just about the visuals, then why pretend to have a story? It's the same thing. If you went to a restaurant and they had menus and they had, you know, uh, they had, you know, a, a wine list and they had all this stuff and you go into the restaurant, you order food and they go, oh, we don't serve food here. Now, right. there are people who go to restaurants for the atmosphere, right? But if the restaurant doesn't serve food, it doesn't do the first job of a restaurant, right? And for me, if you're telling me a story and all you have is pretty pictures, you're not doing your first job. If you want to chat pretty pictures, have a pretty pictures, have a gallery show or have a bunch of pretty pictures and string them together. But don't have characters and scenes and dialogue and tell me you're having a, telling a story and then not tell me one. Yeah, and I guess I'm just not as binary about about it, you know. I just, I feel like you know the amount of movies I really like is probably a small percentage. Mm -hmm. But the movies that I can walk away from with some respect for them because they had four or five great scenes in them. Yeah. Even if it didn't hold together. Yeah. It's like I'll tip my hat to the four or five great scenes. Yeah. And not get mad at the things they got wrong, you know. Yeah. I don't I don't know how to evaluate a great scene if it doesn't work for the piece. Yeah, and I can, you know, the, to me that there's, it's, it's, it's about, there's an idea I haven't seen, or there's a performance sure. that got to a place that was unexpected, or that, you know. Sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a triumph if that happens, but I, right. uh, it's better than average if there's five great <laughs> moments in a film, you know. Yeah, that would make me crazy. That's not my goal as a filmmaker. <laughs> right. Yeah, but, I, know, you know, I, I know what you mean. As someone who started his career ripping apart people's work with a fucking robot puppet, I had to become more charitable. <laughs> oh, sure. Because it wasn't a soulful thing, you know. In a lot right. of ways, it was not a soulful thing to do right. for, for someone who considers themselves a creator, you know. Right. Uh, in some ways, I actually feel like um, that gives us a little bit more license. Every time we put something out there creatively, we do take a risk, and people are going to hate it. And I, I do, you know, no matter what, no matter how good it is, how much good we think it is, somebody's going to go, that was the biggest piece of crap I ever saw or read or whatever. Yeah. That happens. I go, and I, well, at least I, you finished. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> just it. So on, on some level, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to trash people, but I do what, uh, at another level, completely respect that they put themselves out there right. because that's a really hard thing to do. But because I also do that, I feel like uh, it's fair game, right? No, no, I, I mean, everything I watch, I feel like I could fix. Right. You know? Yeah. Everything. Everything I, I feel like I could have given them a couple of really good notes. Right. You know, <laughs> which is just my arrogance. But, you know, I, the other thing is just uh, the vibe. You know, there's a vibe of, like, you can tell if someone is new, you mm -hmm. know? And if it's like, if this is someone's first or second movie, it's a different... Oh, that's different. That's it. Yeah, that is different. That is different. You know, when masters, when supposed masters disappoint me with amateurish moves, that's a different vibe. I'll go along with that. Although sometimes I can be forgiving of masters in that sometimes I think growing, if they are growing, they can make missteps, right? Missteps are something. Laziness is another. That's yeah. a different thing. No, I'm with you 100%. Yeah. But you know what I mean? If you're growing, if you're changing... I, I like so. big swings. I love people who take big swings. Yeah. If they miss. I, yeah. I have a huge respect for like Botch, Stephen Botchko making cop rock, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. That. Yeah. I love that shit where people take their clout and use it as an opportunity to try something completely. Right. 
out of the box, you know? Yeah. Like Barry Levinson doing toys or some shit like that. Right, yeah. You know? Right. Like, no, it's terrible. You missed. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. big swing, and I have so much respect for that. You yeah, know? you tried. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the glory is always in the risking, right? Yeah. The, Especially it's all, when it's successful. Yeah. But, but it means it's, you're not operating out of fear. Right. Losing it. Right. So I, I appreciate the, the willingness to potentially fall on your face, right? Yeah. I, I, I do appreciate that. Um, it's, it's interesting. The biggest mistakes often are when people play it safe, like right. you say, right? Well, right. I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to do that. Well, then you haven't done anything. Right. Yeah. Um, well, that was cool, man. I really, uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for watching You Are a Storyteller. If you have any questions or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at beliefagency.com. 